Joshua chapter 6. We've been looking at this chapter, the capture of Jericho. And uh, by the grace of God, Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter today. Next week we'll be in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is so gnarly. It is such a gnarly chapter. You might want to prepare your little corazones. You might want to prepare your hearts and read ahead a little bit this week. She is a doozy. But for now, uh, we're going to try to finish chapter 6. Before we get into it, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. God, you are so glorified by the fact that you save sinners like us. We don't even understand why you love us. But it's so clear that you do, and you love us even more than we can comprehend. We just rejoice in that today, Lord. We rejoice in that. We ask that, Father, you would send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to come and pour your love abroad in our hearts. We'd experience a fresh reality of your love today. It would penetrate the very depth of who we are, and it flow forth from our lives into one another and into the community and into the world, Lord. Your love is so awesome. You're so good to us. And you're the God that brings down walls, walls that shouldn't be there, walls that are wrong and wicked. You bring them down by your power and by your spirit. And so I pray for those of us that have strongholds in our life today, that Jesus Christ, you would set us free. And we believe by faith that whom the Son is set free is free indeed. So we ask that now that Holy Spirit, you'd come and teach us. You'd convict and convince us. You'd reveal, you'd expose silly little walls and big nasty strongholds. And you would highlight for us the love and the mercy and the grace of the Father through Jesus Christ. And that would be power enough to bring down the walls and to break the strongholds. Bless your people today, Lord. We really want to hear from your wonderful word. And so we would ask together that you would please anoint me to communicate your word, and that you'd make our hearts and our spirits real alert now, Lord. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to read verse 16. We covered it last week, but we're just going to read it to kind of set the stage for today's sermon. Verse 16 of Joshua 6, it says, And it came about at the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And so we talked about last week, the shofar and the shout, that sound of victory for God's people. And we were very careful to draw attention to the fact that there's no power in the sounds themselves. It wasn't the ram's horn itself, and it wasn't the vocal cords of the people, but it's the reality of the faith behind the sound. It is what the sound declares, that is, who God is and what God wants to do. And it was by that declaration of faith by God's people that the walls of Jericho came down. Hebrews 11.30 makes sure that we know that it was by faith. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And so it was by faith that the children of Israel were beginning to experience the victory they were beginning to experience the fullness. God had brought them out of Egypt but he brought him out of Egypt that he might bring him into Canaan. Brought him out of slavery and bondage to bring him into freedom and fullness. And the same is true in our lives. The Lord has saved us from the pit. Amen. He's taken us out of the miry clay, but that he might set our feet upon the rock. He's brought us out of slavery that he might bring us into freedom and fullness. The abundant life of Jesus Christ. And these things are realized by faith for us as they were Joshua and the Israelites. And so we read along those lines, 1 John chapter, three, or chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments aren't burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So there's faith. Believing in the person of Jesus Christ. Believing in His identity and in His word and in His ability. And by that, we are more than overcomers. 
It is our faith that allows us to overcome the world and all that the world would bring against us as Christians and all that the enemy would come against us with. We overcome these things. We experience the victory and the fullness by faith. Faith being defined as believing in who God is and what God's word says. Now, in the case of Joshua and the Israelites, they had to believe that God was bigger than the obstacles they would face. They had to believe that. They would encounter all sorts of obstacles while taking the promised land. They had to believe that God was bigger than the obstacles and bigger than the enemy. They also would have to believe that God's ways were better than their own. Amen? They would have to hold by faith the truth that God's ways were higher than their ways. Now, it's the same for you and I. We can't rely on our own wisdom. We've got to believe that God is wiser than we are and that his ways are higher than our ways. And we've got to believe that God is bigger than the obstacles that we will encounter in this life and that he's bigger than the enemy. Amen? He's bigger than the enemy, Satan. It says in 1 John 4, 4, speaking of us, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you, Jesus, than he who is in the world, Diablo. Greater is he who is in us, the Lord Jesus Christ, than that scoundrel who's been cast down to the world, Satan. The Lord is greater. It's not a power struggle. Sometimes people have a wrong theological idea that the Lord has some power and the devil has some power and there's a power struggle taking place. I'm sorry, that's theologically incorrect. Jesus said this in Matthew 28. All authority has been given unto me. That word authority in the Greek is exousia. It combines the ideas of right and might. Jesus said, all the right in the universe, it's mine. All the might in the universe is mine. And he is in us. So we don't sweat the enemy, amen? He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. It's one thing to say amen. It's another thing to exercise faith. Because faith is not a mere amen. It's not just intellectually agreeing with something or even theologically laying hold of a concept. Faith is what you do. Real faith is active. True faith always has an outflow. And what you do is what you believe. What you do is what you believe. What you do exposes or betrays or reveals what you really believe about God. And when we have faith in Him, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Now, we talked about last week the fact that in this instance where they're coming against Jericho, Israel had extreme numerical superiority. Their fighting force being about 600,000, the inhabitants of Jericho being only 3,000 or more, or more. They had numerical superiority, but there was a perceived inferiority that they would have to deal with. And that was this. Jericho was a walled city. In that time, in that land, in that culture, in that context, if you were anybody, you had a walled city. It meant that you were somebody, you were established, that you had a defense, you had a society, you had a walled city. It was just a different time. Israel didn't have a walled city. They had never had a walled city. They were slaves in Egypt. And then they were wanderers in the wilderness. And now they come into a land that the Lord was giving them and they encounter walled cities. And the people who had walled cities had an identity and a reputation and a perceived strength. Israel didn't necessarily have these things. They had their God, to be sure. And they had faith in that God. But they would certainly look around and go, well, man, we don't have walls. We don't have that that thing which denotes strength and, and identity and power in this society. And you know what? The same is true for us. And we rejoice in that. Because what does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Starting in verse 26, it says, For consider your calling, brethren, you and I, our calling to the Lord. Consider your brethren, your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise of you according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. For God has chosen 
the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, and no man should boast before God. And they didn't have a wall. What was not? They didn't have a wall. What was? Jericho had a big wall. But you know what? They had a big God. And we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And we are able to do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And we rejoice in our weakness because in our weakness, His strength is made perfect or complete. Amen? And the people of God ought to be bold and brave. It says in the book of Daniel concerning the last days that those who know their God will attempt great exploits for him. And I love when I hear about a girl like Stacy who's going to Cambodia into the midst of a Buddhist stronghold to represent and preach the person of Jesus Christ. That's bold. That's bold. And she's going to get into that society and, and she's going to be unwalled, so to speak. They're going to have their fortresses and their strongholds and their developments. And all she's going to have is the Lord and the person of Jesus Christ and it's more than enough. We glory on our weakness because in our weakness, the strength of the Lord is made perfect. And we don't sweat walls. We don't sweat walls. This was a stronghold. Joshua, being a great military tactician and strategist, knew that they would first have to take Jericho. It was in the lowlands. From there, they would go up into the highlands, and as they moved across, they would cut uh, uh, the land of Canaan in half. And this was called the beginning of their central conquest. And they would have their southern conquest and their northern conquest. But it was great military strategy to start in the lowlands, right in the middle of the land, here with Jericho. But it was a stronghold in the land. We don't sweat strongholds, we defeat strongholds by the person of Jesus Christ. And many of us here today have strongholds in our life. Somewhere at some time, we allowed the enemy a little bit of access to our life, a little more than he should have had. You know, he's got no legal right over you because you've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. You've had an address change and a change of ownership. He's got no right over you. He's got no legal ground in your life. But Satan is a squatter and he'll take whatever ground you give him. You give him a little bit, he'll go ahead and and tie down and hold down and seek to develop a stronghold if you don't deal with that. And some of you here today, you've got strongholds in your life. And I believe that as we continue through the service, the Holy Spirit's going to reveal to you what those are if you don't already know. Maybe it's not quite a stronghold yet. It's just the start of a little wall that ought not to be in your life. The Lord wants to deal with it today. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Though we walk according to the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. But our weapons are divinely powerful. Literally, they have power with God. They are divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. God has given us weapons for tearing down strongholds, walled cities in our lives. And it is prayer and the word of God, our offensive weapons, prayer like a nuclear bomb to the fortress of the enemy and the word of God, the sword of the spirit. Some of you today will identify strongholds in your life and you'll say, you know what? I want to be free from this. I've had this walled city in my promised land for long enough and I want to be free. And so I suggest that today at the end of the service, you come up to the prayer team and you say, you know what? I got the stronghold. I got this wall. I want it out. Help me. And together, you guys will employ the weapons that are divinely powerful before God. And by faith, walls are going to come down in this house today. People are going to get set free today. And whom the Son is set free is free indeed in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17. The Lord is giving them instruction now through their leader Joshua about them taking the city. And it says in verse 17, And the city shall be under the band. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the band, lest you covet them and take some of the things under the band, so you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. Verse 19. 
But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Now, the Lord speaks through Joshua to the people and says, when you go up and take this city, you're not to collect the spoil as people normally would. And that would have been the protocol at the time. When somebody took a city or a region, they would go in and they would take the spoil. And that spoil would have been very valuable to Israel. They were about two and a half million strong now. And it would have been great for them to get some of the supplies and the resources and the stored up grain and all these other things. But the Lord said, you're not supposed to do what people normally do. I want you not to take the spoil and certain things I want you to bring before me. Now, there's two things going on here with the Lord's instructions. First is the idea of the first fruit offering. The first fruit offering. Throughout the Bible, we see that the people of God were to bring their first fruit to the Lord. It might have been the firstborn of a flock. They were to bring that to the Lord. Their firstborn child was holy unto the Lord. It might have been the first of the harvest. It was to be given in an offering to the Lord. Now, this is the first city that they take in the land of blessing, in the promised land, Jericho. And so it is to be to the Lord. The Lord said, it's holy unto me. The concept of a first fruit offering. And the Lord is wanting to continue now that they're in a new dispensation, so to speak. Now that they're in a new time, a new phase in the life of Israel. The Lord is wanting them to continue in the concept of we bring our first, i.e. our best, before the Lord. Now, we don't make old time, Old Testament sacrifices anymore. Jesus Christ has been sacrificed once and for all. And he's a fulfillment of those things. But the principle remains that God's people are to bring their best before the Lord. We're to bring our very best before the Lord. So often, let's be real, the Lord gets the leftovers. We wake up in the morning and it's our agenda, it's our will, it's what we want, it's what we want to get done. And you know what, Lord? If I have some time and some energy later on, maybe we'll do some stuff. We would never say it like that. That's horrific. But that's the reality of how we live so often. But it's not to be so with God's people. Listen, God gave us his very best in the person of Jesus Christ. We are to bring before the Lord our very best. When are you at your best? Bring it before the Lord. Are you at your best in the morning? I'm at my best before dawn, early in the morning. So I, I sanctify that time unto the Lord. Some of you, you're like, that's ridiculous. When are you best? It doesn't matter when, but when are you at your best? Present yourself to the Lord. As a living sacrifice, it's your reasonable act of worship unto him. And you know what? Whatever it is that you give to the Lord, let it be the very best that you could bring to the Lord. I'm always intrigued by church rummage sales, raising money for missions and stuff. And people bring the stuff that even the dumpster people wouldn't take. They put it out by the curb one week and the trash man came and said, what are you kidding me? Forget about it. I'm not taking that. And just left it there and they go, I know who wants it. The church, the Lord, he wants my junk. He don't want your junk. We are to bring our very best before the Lord. That's why when it comes to tithes, the biblical concept is that when we receive income, the first 10% goes to the Lord. That's the biblical concept. What is unbiblical is to wait until we've paid all of our bills and done all the stuff we want to do and see if we have 10% left over and then give it to the Lord. You see, there's no faith in that. God does not need your money. He really doesn't. He can make more if he wanted to. He really doesn't need your money. What he wants is your heart. So often our hearts are wrapped around our money. And so the Lord says, bring a tithe, but do so by faith. And so in my household, when when we get our paycheck, the first check is written to the Lord. The first 10% of all that comes in goes to the Lord. It is a first fruit offering. And thereby it's done by faith because we go, wow, we give this to the Lord. We might not have enough left over to pay our other bills. That's the point, man. Malachi chapter 3 makes this promise. The Lord says, test me now in this thing. If you bring in the tithes into the storehouse of God, see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out blessings on you. It's the only time in the Bible where God says, come on, test me, try me, let's see. It's done by faith. It's our first fruits unto the Lord. And so 
God is teaching his people that as they begin to take the land, that the first goes to the Lord. It's holy unto the Lord. Now, the second thing that he's wanting to teach them is that they, as God's people, are to have different values and priorities than the people around them. Amen? They as God's people, we as God's people, are to have a different set of values and priorities than the world around us. As I said, the normal and accepted and expected protocol would have been that they go in and they take everything they could possibly use from that city as a spoil. You see, but Israel was to be different at this time. At this moment, their trust was going to have to continue to be in the Lord. Two and a half million strong, all the supplies in that city would have been a a great benefit to them. But they were going to have to trust in the Lord to be their provision. Later on down the road, in subsequent conquests, they would be able to take the spoils and the Lord would tell them to do so. There's nothing inherently wrong with a spoil. It's just at this moment, the Lord wanted to teach them to rely upon him, to do things a little differently than the world does things. And the Lord will often ask that of us. And so what he's wanting to develop in them is a different mindset, a different approach, a different perspective. The Lord wants to do that in us. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say this, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now look at verse 2. And don't be conformed to this world. Don't let this world fit you into its mold. Don't let this world, its ideologies, its philosophies, its values, shape you, form you, and mold you. Don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or understand or experience what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the Bible tells us explicitly, that we are to not be like this world, not think like this world, but we're to be transformed when our minds are renewed. Now, that's the wonderful thing about life in Jesus Christ, is he's transforming you and I into the image of God. He's transforming us to be more like him. That's what we live as Christians, is transformed lives. That's what God is into, is transformation. Transforming individuals and families and communities and nations. He loves to transform. And the way that one is transformed is by the renewing of their mind. The mind has got to be renewed or washed, so to speak. And the way that one's mind is renewed is with the word of God. Now, if we're to be honest, we would have to say that our primary influences in life are the world and the philosophies and the ideologies of the world. It's almost impossible to escape it. Through media and through popular culture and television and this, that, or the other, the majority of our days are spent being bombarded by the philosophies, ideologies, priorities, and values of the world. And so our mind gets cluttered up with these things. And so the word of God declares that very literally your mind needs to be renewed. And the way that that happens is when the word of God comes in, it washes your mind. Little dirty things in there washes them. Little holes in there renews them. Little misconnections fixes them, straightens it out. And then as our minds are renewed, our minds that seed of of emotions and intellect and reasoning and personality, as that is renewed, it changes our worldview and we are transformed and we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the word of God. The more the word that you put in, the more like him you become. And so the Lord's just teaching him that very simple lesson here. Look, we're going to do things differently than an army normally would because you're not normal people. You're my people. And you're to be different. And so the Lord speaks that to us. Now, verse 18 really reveals the wisdom of God when it says, As for you, keep yourselves from the things under the ban." lest you covet them and take some of the things under the ban so that you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. God gives them a warning here. 
He says, listen, you're going to be tempted by these things. You're going to see them. You're going to covet them. You're going to really want them. You're going to lust after them. But I'm warning you, don't touch them. And he tells them, if you do, there's going to be consequences. Now, we need to understand. We don't always believe this, but we need to. We need to know and understand and believe that God's warnings are purposeful. They're not meaningless. They're not arbitrary. They're purposeful and they're meaningful. You see, God knows what's dangerous. God knows what's going to destroy us. God knows what's going to get us bound up, what's going to pull us away from truth, what's going to pull us away from wholeness and peace and joy and well-being. God knows what those things are. And so he calls those things sin and says, don't sin because those things will mess you up. It's not that he arbitrarily goes, you know, at some cosmic time, I like this, I don't like this, so this is good, but this is sin. Don't do that, it might be fun for you. It's not how he does it. In his wisdom and in his kind father's heart, he knows what is destructive for humanity, and so he warns us in his word about those things. Listen, Israel, he says, you're going to be tempted by these things. Purpose in your heart right now that you're not going to do it. I'm just warning you, if you do it, it's going to bring trouble into the camp of Israel. And we're going to see that next week. Oh, it's so nasty. We're going to see what happens. But for us, it's important that we cultivate a practice of heeding God's warnings. That really, we look for them, we listen to them, and we purpose in our hearts to heed them. The warnings that come through God's word, they're all over in there. The psalmist says in Psalm 19 about the word of God, Lord, your word is sweeter than honeycomb and it's more precious than silver and gold and by your word, thy servant is warned. His word warns us. His Holy Spirit will also warn us. Prophetically in our hearts, the Holy Spirit will speak to our spirit, will convict our conscience of wrong things and warn us, don't go there, don't do that, stop. And then the people of God, the community of faith, will often warn us as well as we're called to diligently watch over one another's hearts. It says in Hebrews chapter 3, lest there be found in any one of us a deceitful and unbelieving heart. And so the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. And we need to cultivate being susceptible and responsive to God's warnings. When we don't heed God's warnings, there's a hardening that happens to the heart. And there's a searing that happens to the conscious. Every time the Lord says, hey, listen, don't do that. And you ignore the Lord and you do it there comes a hardening to the heart and a searing to the conscious. Seared. Nothing gets in, nothing gets out. And the Lord still pursues you by grace and by His Holy Spirit. Listen, listen, listen. Don't do that. Stop. Don't do that. Don't go in that direction. And if you continue to ignore the Lord, there comes a greater hardening and searing until you get to the point that you can't even hear the Lord anymore. And you say, as Israel said in Deuteronomy, in their delusion, some would say, we have peace in our hearts, even though they were walking away from the Lord, going in the wrong direction. You see it all the time. People say, well, I don't feel convicted about it. I feel just fine about it. You know what? That's because you can't hear the voice of God. Because you have hardened your heart by saying no to the Lord so many times, and you've seared your conscience you're not even hearing the voice of God anymore. And that is such a dangerous place to be. He's a loving father. He's a loving father who wants to watch out for you as, your, as, as you as his children. He cares for you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. He wants to guide you and direct you. He wants to whisper. He wants to be the voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Don't turn to the right or to the left. He wants to lead you beside still waters and cause you to lie down in green pastures. He wants you to experience fullness and blessings and peace and joy. But you've got to say yes to the Lord. You've got to say, yes, Lord. You've got to respond to the Lord. And I know what you think, because I think the same thing. Oh, yeah, but not in this little area. This area is no big deal. This is just a little thing. 
And you know, I'm just getting, this isn't going to be a problem. <laughs> oh boy. Wait till next week. It's just as nasty as it gets next week. You hold that thought until next week. Those of us that so often think, this is just a little thing. This is no big deal. Nobody will know. It won't affect my walk with the Lord or the people of God. When you do that, your conscience becomes seared, your heart becomes hard, and you're on to the road to destruction. Proverbs warns us about this all the time. Proverbs 10.8 says, The wise of heart will receive commands. The wise person receives admonishment and rebuke and directives. But a babbling fool will be thrown down. Proverbs 14 and Proverbs 16 both say, There's a way which seems right to man. It makes perfect sense to man. Man goes, What? This makes perfect sense to me. Man can rationalize it. Man can defend it. Man can make sense of it. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is a way of death. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? A guy who thinks he's got it all together and knows just what to do? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 27, 12. A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. But the naive proceed and pay the penalty. And Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But he who walks wisely, that is according to God's word, will be delivered. Will be delivered. Will be delivered. But he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And yet that's the mantra of the world, isn't it? What are you doing? I'm just following my heart. Even among Christians, what are you thinking, man? Well, I really believe in my heart. Well, I just really feel in my heart. Listen, man, you know what the Bible says about the heart in Jeremiah 17? It is desperately wicked and full of deceit. You don't even understand it. And the Bible declares here, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But the one who walks according to the word of God will be delivered on that day from the stronghold and the schemes of the enemy and the work of the world, they will be delivered. Verse 20. So the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets and it came about when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Now, when it says there, the walls fell down flat, literally in the Hebrew, it says that the walls fell in its place. That's literally what's described there. The wall fell in its place. The walls of Jericho did not fall outward. They didn't fall inwards. The Bible says here that they fell down straight on top of themselves as if God himself just swiped away the bricks on the bottom and they just crumbled in that way. Notice that it says, every man went into the city straight up ahead. That means that they were just able to go right over the debris because the wall fell right down. They didn't have to back up because the wall was coming out. The Bible says that the wall fell on top of itself. Now, one of the wonderful things to do as a Christian is to get yourself a good book on archaeology in the Bible. Archaeology in the Bible. There has been over 25,000 archaeological discoveries that agree with the record of the Word of God, that uphold, that support, that sustain, that lend validity to, that show to be true the record of the Word of God. One great book I'd recommend is The Stones Cry Out by Randall Price. Anything Randall Price writes gets it. He's my favorite guy on uh, prophetic stuff, but he's also a world-class archaeologist. He's got a great book, When the Stones Cry Out. Get that. You will be incredibly blessed and built up in your faith. But here is one of those instances where the science of archaeology shows us that the biblical record is true in its detail. This verse said that the wall fell down flat. Now, when archaeological excavations were done on Jericho, the ancient city of Jericho, and we'll go right by it when we're in Israel in September, there's been about six different excavations that were done. And what they found was that, quote, piles of mud bricks from the collapsed city wall were found at the base of the tell. The tell is an ancient mound of uh, uh, ruined civilizations, verifying that the wall fell beneath itself. When they began to excavate, it was very clear to the archaeologist, the wall didn't come out, the wall didn't go in, the wall went down. 
Only the Lord could do that. If it was people, it'd go one way or another. The wall came down straight. The Bible says it. The science of archaeology shows it to be true. Amen? There's another archaeological evidence, and it confirms the fact that most of Israel observed the ban spoken of in the, by the Lord in verses 18 through 19. Achan cheesed out on the gig. That's next week's lessons. It's so gnarly. He, he blew it. But most of Israel observed the ban, did not take the spoils as the Lord told them to. Now, archaeological excavations show this detail of Joshua chapter 6 to be true as well. Quote, The destruction occurred at the end of the 15th century BC, precisely the time of the conquest of Canaan, according to the internal chronology of the Bible. Many large jars full of charred grain were found in the destroyed buildings. This is a very rare find since because of its value, grain was normally plundered from a vanquished city. You see, the normal protocol would have been that whoever conquered Jericho would have gone in and taken the grain. No question about it. They would have removed it. That was a valuable resource for them. But when archaeologists went there, they found these ancient vats full of grain all over the city just left over. Furthermore, the large amount of grain at Jericho indicates that the harvest had just taken place. That's what Joshua said. Joshua chapter 2 verse 6, chapter 3 verse 15 said that the conquest was during the time of the harvest. The amount of grain in the city proves that it was indeed the harvest time, just as the Bible said. The amount of grain also shows that the siege against Jericho was short. The Bible said it was seven days. The amount of grain demonstrates that. Here's why. Normally when an army would lay siege to a city, that city had an idea that that army was coming. They would have scouts out. They would see them coming from afar. And so they would gather together resources and uh, water and food and all the things that they needed and they would shut down the city tight. Nobody comes in, nobody goes out. We know from the biblical account that Jericho was already shut down in that way. And because these walls of these walled cities were often insurmountable, What the armies would do is just camp out around that city and they'd say, look, nothing's going in. Nobody's coming out. We'll just sit here and wait for them to run out of food and water and it'll be easy for us. Depending on the supplies they accumulated, that could be weeks or months or more. When they excavated Jericho, it was overflowing with grain, which proves exactly what the Bible said, that it was a short siege, just some seven days. They didn't even get to use even a minuscule amount of their supplies. The large amount of grain in Jericho also indicates that, as I said before, the Israelites did not plunder the city because the protocol would have been to go in and take all that stuff, and it was still there. Now, there's another archaeological evidence uh, that supports verse 24. Please look at verse 24. It says, And they burned the city with fire, and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron, they put in the treasury the house of the Lord. So verse 24 says that when they took the city, they then burned it with fire. Quote again, many large jars full of charred grain were found in the destroyed buildings. Charred grain, it had been burnt. A layer of ash three feet thick with burned timbers and debris demonstrates that the Israelites burned the whole city and everything in it. And here's a quote from Kathleen Kenyon, who was the fourth one to excavate ancient Jericho. She was a British archaeologist. She says, the destruction was complete. Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire, and every room was filled with fallen bricks, timbers, and household utensils. And most rooms of fallen debris was heavily burnt. I love that. I just love that. I love that people go dig around in the dirt and find out that the Bible is right. That's glorious to me. There's one more. Uh, Verse 26. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord is a man who rises up and builds the city of Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. Now, Joshua said that anybody that would seek to rebuild the city, restore it to its former glory, would be cursed. And they would pay for the rebuilding of that city with their children. 500 years later, someone tried to rebuild the city and were told about it in 1 Kings 16.34. In the days of Heel the Bethelite, he, uh, or in his days, Heel the Bethelite built Jericho. 
He laid its foundations with the loss of Abraham, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. 500 years later, the word was confirmed. Listen, this world and everything in it is passing away. Jesus said, my word will never pass away. 500 years later, it was confirmed, and we know it to be true, historically speaking. Now, verse 21, we've got to deal with. Verse 21 says, And they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Now, this is a tough one. This is one of those ones that nobody loves this verse. They went into the city and they killed everybody. Men, women, young and old. That sounds harsh. It is harsh. It's gnarly. It's a harsh reality. We need to try to understand why, biblically speaking, we need to try to understand why that was done. Two things we need to consider in coming to an understanding of this verse. Number one, the character of God. Number two, the wisdom of God. Number one, the character of God. You know that God is both a righteous judge and a merciful father. Amen? God is both in his character, in his identity, a righteous judge and a merciful father. But we also know this from the scriptures, that God prefers mercy to judgment. Amen? He's a righteous judge and a merciful father, but he prefers mercy to judgment. His word even says that mercy triumphs over judgment. But you need to understand the nature of the Canaanite religions and culture at this time. They worship false gods that the Bible identifies as demonic personalities impersonating false gods, impersonating gods. So they worship these demonic entities. And the goal of Satan and his demons is, is to mar the image of God in man. It's to torment men and to mess men up. And so what do you think these demonic false gods did? They brought the people into bondage. They brought them into torment. They brought them into misery. There was extreme and gross sexual immorality that was deemed to be worshipped to these gods, a kind of such we won't speak about. And these false gods also brought them to the point of sacrificing their children. Over and over and over again, millions of them sacrificing their children to these demonic gods. And these gods would keep them in bondage and drudgery and in defeat. Now, God's righteousness would dictate that he deal with such wickedness, such sexual immorality, human sacrifice. God's righteousness would dictate that he deals with such wickedness. But God's mercy causes him to always warn people before he brings judgment. Always. If ever God was going to judge Israel, he always sent prophets first. God sent his son Jesus Christ for you and I. In the tribulation period, there will be an angel flying around midheaven preaching the eternal gospel of peace. We can be absolutely sure by the character of God because he prefers mercy to judgment that he tried to communicate himself to these people, that he tried to reveal himself to these people. For how long? Who knows? We certainly do see it, though, in the book of Joshua. Turn to chapter 2 with me. Joshua chapter 2. Now, in Joshua chapter 2, we encounter Rahab, who we'll see as we close out our, our lesson today. We encounter Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. She heard the report of Israel and the God of Israel. She heard and she believed. She heard and she believed. She was a prostitute in that society. She would have been the last one to hear. We know from chapter 5, verse 1, that everybody in the land heard about the God of Israel. Look at the report from Rahab. It says in verse 9, Rahab said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. 
And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Now look. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Rahab heard the report about the Lord and she believed that He was the one true God. What does Romans chapter 10 verse 17 say? Faith comes by Hearing, she heard and she had faith and exercised that faith. Because of her faith, believing the report about God, she would be spared. God was going to spare her when the rest of the city was taken. She, along with her family, her relatives, and her possessions would be spared. Why? She just believed. Now the rest of the inhabitants of Jericho, they heard the same report. They heard the same stories. They could have done the same thing. Hearing, they could have believed and repented and certainly God would have spared them. Look at the mercy of God. This one prostitute just said, he is for sure the one true God. And so God would spare her and her mom and her dad and her brothers and her sisters and her relatives and all her stuff, the Bible says, all of it would be spared because she believed. God prefers mercy to judgment. Everyone in Jericho could have believed and they all would have been saved. But when you reject the mercy of God, logically and theologically speaking, there's nothing left for you but the judgment of God. He wants to give you mercy to not judge you for what you deserve to be judged for. But when you reject his mercy, there's nothing left but judgment. It's so clear that the Lord desperately wanted them to repent. He sent Israel around the walls 13 times. Don't you see there a picture of God's grace? Don't you see there a picture of God's grace that he did not immediately send them to rush upon the inhabitants of Jericho? They heard the report. They knew. They could have seen the Israelites come around the city and just went, okay, let's think about this here. God parted the Red Sea for them. God parted the Jordan for them. Now there's 600,000 of them. Maybe they've got the right God after all. 13 times they marched around the city. I'll tell you what that was. That was God leaving room for repentance. God always leaves room for repentance. There is always an opportunity to repent. Even with Judas, the night he betrayed the Lord, the Lord gave him room to repent. Even that evening, as they marched around the walls, it was a demonstration of God's willingness to give them room to repent and to extend mercy. That was God's protocol for God's people. Turn a few pages back to Deuteronomy 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Look at God's protocol for God's people when they would take cities. It says in Deuteronomy 20 verse 10, When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. You shall offer it terms of peace. The first thing that God wanted to offer to these people, even though they were engaged in such wickedness, first thing you wanted to offer them was peace. Jesus Christ came to make peace between our wicked hearts and a holy God. When you come to a city, he said, the first thing you shall do is offer it peace. Verse 11, and if it comes about that it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then it shall be that all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. But they would live. They would go on. God is demonstrating here that his preference is mercy over judgment. But when mercy is rejected, the only option left is judgment. Verse 12, however... If it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you've got to besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your land, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Look at verse 16. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, you shall not then leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now look at the reasoning. Verse 18, very carefully. In order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods so that you would sin against the Lord, your God. And there enters in the wisdom of God. 
In the character of God, he's a righteous judge. He prefers mercy. If you reject his mercy, you receive judgment. In the wisdom of God, then, he told his people, you've got to wipe them out entirely. Because if you don't wipe them out, they will draw you into detestable things and they will draw you away from me and you will fall into their wickedness. The New Testament says to you and I, don't be fooled. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's an eternal truth. It was true then. And what Israel failed to do when they took the land was utterly drive out all the inhabitants and destroy them like the Lord told them to. And by the time we get to the next book, by the time we get to Judges, It says, and Israel did not utterly destroy the Canaanites. And so Israel then, the next generation, it says, began to follow after their false gods, the Asherah, the Baal, and they forsook the Lord, their God. God knows best. He's absolutely wise. His warnings are not meaningless. He said, listen, if they don't repent and get right, They will be an influence for you on evil. So there is nothing left for them except for my judgment that I will execute through you. If you don't execute it, it's going to come back to bite you. And Israel got to the place where they were sacrificing their kids to demons. It's the whole context of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes to the southern kingdom of Judah at a time where they are sacrificing their kids to demons because they failed to obey the wisdom of God in this area. Go back to Joshua chapter 6 as we finish. Joshua 6 verse 22. And Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all that she has out of there as you have sworn to her. Okay, wait a minute. There's a little tiny thing we need to think about real quick here. The walls just came down. If you remember, Joshua chapter 2 verse 15 told us that Rahab's house was in the city walls. Rahab's house is in the city walls, but the walls just came down. And now Joshua says, go in and bring Rahab out of her house. Wait a minute, disconnect. If her house is in the walls and the walls came down, there's no house for us to go into and get Rahab. Thank you, Lord, for the science of archaeology, which has discovered that there was a portion of the wall on the northern end of the city that stood remaining. It was Rahab's house. The Lord is so faithful. The Lord is so good to his word. He said to this simple woman, because she exercised simple faith, you and all your family and all your stuff is going to be spared. Verse 23. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and everything that she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside of the camp of Israel. And then they burned the city with fire. So the Lord's word through Israel to Rahab was made good. She was spared because she had faith in the God of Israel. And so it says in Hebrews eleven thirty one, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient. But can you imagine the hope that Rahab had to exercise? Because she, she, the instructions that the Israelites gave her was when we come to take the city, you and all your family and all your stuff be ready in your house and hang this scarlet, this scarlet cord out the window. Remember from chapter two? Hang the scarlet cord out the window and we're going to come and get you. Now, Rahab didn't know the plan. She didn't know about circling around the walls 13 times. So you can imagine the first time the Israelites came marching to Jericho from Gilgal, two miles away, that she saw it, gathered up her family and said, here we go. I told you God would make good on his plan. I believed in him and they're coming to save us now. And they'd march around the city and she'd be hanging out her window. Hey boys, ah, here they are, mom, dad, check it out. Here they are. And they'd march around the city and march right back to Gilgal. Oh, okay. Well, I believe the Lord. And I could just imagine her father saying, Rahab. (laughs) And the next day they would come. See, see mom, see dad, see kid. I told you they'd come for us. They're coming. Here comes the salvation of the Lord. And they march around the city and right back to Gilgal. And 13 times. She didn't know the plan. Can you imagine the faith that she had to exercise? And remember, Israel was told to be quiet by the Lord so nobody could respond to her. 
She'd be hanging out the window going, Hey guys, remember me? Rahab, look, here's the scarlet cord. It's a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm under the blood. Hello, come and get me and my people and my stuff. And they couldn't say a word in response. And day after day, they march around and march off until the 13th time. And then literally her world began to crumble. Can you imagine the faith she had to exercise to stay put in that place? Literally, her world began to crumble. She would look to the right and the walls were coming down. She would look to the left and everything she knew around her home was falling apart before her very eyes. Man, the hope that she had to exercise in the word of God. And she believed. And she was delivered by the Lord. In the same way, Hebrews 10.23 says to you and I, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Guys, I know life is hard. I know sometimes it begins to crumble on the right and on the left. I know sometimes it seems to be coming apart at the very foundation, but hold fast the confession of our hope who is Jesus Christ, because he who promised is faithful. The Lord is faithful. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. In fact, He's coming for you at the rapture of the church. Hold on, church. Stand your ground. Trust the Lord. Believe in the Lord as Rahab did. You will not crumble with the rest. You will stand by the grace of God. I love what Psalm 125 says. I'll just read it to you. Verses 1 and 2. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. And as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion. They're not going to be moved. The foundations might seem to shake and the walls might come around you and the world and everything that you know may seem to crumble. But those who trust in the Lord will not be moved. It's a word of God. I believe it. And as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, and when we go to Jerusalem in September, we will see the mountains are round about her. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is about his people. A shield and a defense and a bulwark in the day of trouble. Stand firm, hold your ground. And we finish with this simple verse, verse 25. Then Joshua, are, uh, however Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Isn't that cool? Rahab got a brand new identity. A brand new start in life. She had a change of address. She had a change of reality. Listen, she was a prostitute. Who knows the horrors by which her previous life was defined. Who knows the things that caused her to be in that place. Her life might, might have been the result and the outflow of all sorts of abuse. Her life might have been the result in the outflow of abandonment. It was for sure the result in the outflow of a wicked society. There might have been all sorts of desperation that brought her to that place. But she was getting a new beginning. And now her life would be the outworking of the love of God, not abuse. And her life would now be the outworking of the mercy of God and the presence of God and the power of God, not abandonment. And her life would now be the outworking of the righteousness of God, not the wickedness of society. And her life would now be the outworking of fellowship with the people of God. And she was changed. And the old baggage, the old wounds, the old scars, the Lord would heal those things. We are the broken, but he's the healer. He is able. He makes all things brand new. Rahab got a brand new life. All she did was trust the Lord. Amen? Lord, we thank you for these glorious truths. Lord, you're wonderful in all your ways. You're so merciful. And we ask together now that God, you would extend mercy to us, your people. That mercy would triumph over judgment.
And Lord, that you would bring down the walls in our lives that ought not to be there. Right now. Not later, Lord. This morning. We, not next year, Lord. This morning. Bring down the walls that ought not to be in our lives, Lord. Bring down the strongholds. Lord, we're sorry for the way that we gave the enemy ground or let him in or whatever it is, Lord. We're just silly and weak. We're sorry for it. We ask that you would bring down the strongholds in our lives. The Holy Spirit, you would come with the power of the triune God and work the redemptive work of God in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our community, and that the walls would come down. Work that in our midst, Lord. We are the broken. You are the healer. Come with healing in your wings. We don't want to be defined by those failures anymore. We don't want to be defined by abuse. We don't want to be defined by abandonment. We don't want to be defined by hurt and loss. We want to be defined by your love and your mercy and your power and your grace and your righteousness. We want our lives to be the outworking of these things. And so, Holy Spirit, come. If you need help today with your strongholds, the prayer team is up here. Carpets are up here to get before the Lord in communion to celebrate Jesus on the cross.